The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. It's good for us to be together as we open God's Word. I am slightly tempted to just ask the children to come back up and sing for us some more and to skip my sermon this morning. But praise God for our children who are declaring God's praises and the, the people that are pouring into them to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray and as we open God's word? This morning we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're asking that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning so that we would see more of Jesus, that we would see more of how worthy you truly are that we would see your glory and your majesty. And so we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love so that we would rejoice and delight in who you are and all that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does the resurrection matter? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Why does the resurrection matter? How would you answer that question this morning. Well, let me share a few different quotes on the resurrection. Tim Keller writes, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? So if Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he said, you have to deal with. And if he didn't, then nothing he said matters at all whatsoever. John MacArthur writes this about the resurrection. Neutrality about the resurrection is not an option. Either Jesus rose and rightly demands your attention and your repentance, your trust, and your obedience, or he stayed dead. If he only became a rotting corpse, why should you follow him? Or C.S. Lewis, he writes this, The Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. Speaking about the resurrection. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe. The writer writing himself into the story. And rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. Each of these three statements, I think, points us to one central truth this morning. That the resurrection is central to Christianity. Without it, we're all wasting our time this morning. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. There is no heaven. There is no eternal life. And there is no hope for any of us this morning. But if Christ rose from the dead, then it authenticates all that Jesus said and taught. It becomes the very linchpin of all of the Christian faith. 
And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to just unpack the first section of 1 Corinthians 15. And it's a chapter of 58 verses that's all dedicated to the significance of the resurrection. And in these first 11 verses, Paul doesn't actually talk all that much about the resurrection, but he talks about the gospel. And so if we would say that the resurrection is the very linchpin of the Christian faith, then we would say it's the linchpin of the gospel itself. And the gospel is what gives us a context to understand the resurrection. So what I want to do this morning is just look at these first 11 verses that give us the terrains of the gospel. It's like we're hiking into Mount Everest to see the nature of the resurrection. Sometimes at our house, we'll say, let's go for a hike or let's go for a walk. And they'll say, well, where are we walking to? And and we say, no, 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 kids. The point is the walk is what we're doing. We're hiking in order to see everything around us. We're not going somewhere. We're going to walk in a circle and come back to where we started. And and it's a little bit like that this morning. We're going to take a walk and climb the heights and get to the very Alps of the gospel and come back down. And you're going to say, well, what's the main point? That was it. To see the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of the gospel. We were praying in the prayer room earlier that we would see these central realities with fresh affections in our hearts. And that we wouldn't yawn and say, oh yeah, I've heard this before. But instead, tell me the age-old story. So, we're going to unpack these verses, these first 11 verses, with three main points. We have just been enrolled in Gospel 101 with the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to see that the Gospel is essential in verses 1 and 2. The Gospel is historical in verses 3 to 7. And then the Gospel is personal in verses 8 through 11. So, 1 Corinthians 11, so far in the letter, Paul's instructed these Christians on a wide range of topics. And now he turns to what he began with at the very beginning of his letter, where he says, we proclaimed the very testimony of God, Christ crucified and nothing else. And now we look at verses one and two and he says, I would remind you brothers of the gospel that I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul begins this gospel reminder with four things. He says the gospel was preached by me, Paul. The gospel was received by you, the Corinthians, And you're standing in this gospel, number three, and then number four, this is the gospel which saves you. Now, let's look at these elements. The first is that the gospel ought to be a preached gospel. God's word is designed in such a way that it's to be proclaimed and heralded and preached. It's the central power which our lives revolve around. Just see what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.1 when he's writing to Timothy and, and he says to him and he charges him. And, and see just the elevated language, as big of a charge as he could possibly muster up. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. And here's the charge. Preach the word. Or Paul in Romans, Romans 10, 
14 to 17, he, he talks about the necessity of gospel preaching. Many of you know this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to call on Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? And then he goes on and he says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the gospel is one of those realities that you just can't discover on your own. You can't just walk out into the mountains, you know, hike into the mountains of Tibet and and meditate and just think, "I, I hope something good comes to me. It's not something that you just think, let me empty my mind and maybe something glorious will fill it. It's not just sensed through the universe. You can't just get it through osmosis. You know, like students that put this, fall asleep on their biology book and think maybe that'll at least get me a little further along for the test. You can't just discover it magically. But God uses the very proclamation of the gospel to plant seeds in our hearts so that they sprout and grow. And yet this gospel is a preached gospel that brings about salvation for everyone who believes. And I know that this morning, in a group this size, that there are some who are not yet trusting in Jesus. And we would even call you this morning to hear the gospel, to hear the preached gospel, and not to shut off your heart. And one of the things that we want this gospel to do is to enliven our hearts, to awaken in us new and fresh affections for Jesus. In the same way that we heard the children singing this morning, and my eyes were tearing up because of just the beauty of the sounds with the lyrics that converged in such a way that just highlighted, he is indeed worthy. We want to be able to see that in his word as well this morning. So the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to Z. It's not just what we begin with. Oh, it got me saved. Now I can move on from the gospel and move on to bigger and better things. I can kind of learn about systematic theology and biblical theology and soteriology and ecclesiology. But rather, we come back again and again to the greatest thing. And that's what we want to highlight this morning. The gospel is that greatest thing. Galatians 2.20. You all know this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the flesh. And the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the gospel isn't just to get us saved, but it's the very power that we rely on every single day. We come back again and again to this gospel. Let me just apply this very practically for us this morning. So you get frustrated at your spouse. I'm sure it never happens to any of you all. But say, imagine with me, you get frustrated at your spouse or your roommate or your sibling or a coworker. And you get angry and you lash out by saying something insulting that, that calls into question their motives and character. And a couple hours pass and you begin to feel bad. And you're just like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was stupid of me. 
And the Lord brings conviction that you sinned in your speech by speaking out of anger. So what do you do in that moment? Like, where does the gospel intersect with real life? Because that happens to me all the time. I'll say something and I'll come back and I'll say, ah, I'm so sorry. What, what, What do you do? Well, we would say, okay, we probably should apologize. But what goes on in your heart and mind? You could think, well, I didn't really mean it, and it wasn't that bad, so I'm just going to move on. Some of us do that. Or others of us, we think, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I can't ever get this right. And then we just go into this tailspin of despondency. But what does the gospel tell us? Our gospel tells us, yes, you are indeed as bad as you think you are. You actually... Your words reflected the very brokenness of your sinful heart. You, you, you meant everything you said in that moment. And yet, the gospel comes and says, but if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that we don't stay there as a horrible, wicked person where we say hurtful things that tear down others, but we say, oh, I have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus once again. And we repent and we seek forgiveness and we apologize. And yet we now walk in this newness of life. And so when Paul says that this is the essential gospel that was preached to you, that you believed, in which you stand, which brings about your salvation. He's saying this gospel is essential, not just for your salvation, one-time deal, but in an ongoing way. It's an essential aspect of everyday living. I wonder if that's true for us this morning, that we're coming back again and again to these gospel truths. Paul says this in verse 2. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What he's saying there is that there is a way to have a superficial, shallow, and incoherent way of, quote-unquote, believing in Jesus such that you're not saved. Some believe in Jesus in vain, that they don't grow in Christ-likeness, they remain under the wrath of God, and they're under the very power of sin and death. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, said in Matthew seven twenty-two, he said, some of you are going to say in that very last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And there's going to be looks of shocked horror when Jesus himself says, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me. So one way to deceive ourselves is to say, well, I'm saved because one day way back in the day I got baptized or I signed a card or I responded to an altar call. So I don't need to worry about obeying Jesus or reading the Bible or worshiping with the people of God or caring about my sin. This is the type of deceived attitude that leads to condemnation. But what does Paul say here in 1 Corinthians 15? He says, hold fast to this gospel. 
Come back to it again and again. Don't depart from it. Don't find false confidence in what happened back there, but hold on to these realities right now. Some, some of us can think of the gospel in, in sort of a self-help sort of way. But we buy into the self-help gospel, kind of like, uh, you know, a five-hour energy. I, I'll, I'll just feel better about myself. You know, I just want to hear how Jesus loves me despite all of my sin and, and, and failures. And I'll follow Jesus insofar as he helps me make money or have more friends or be la- less sad or depressed. But again, this loses sight of the very purpose of the gospel, which is to redeem our past, give hope to our present, and conform us into Christ's likeness for the very future. So Paul's stated in this first point that the gospel is essential for salvation and for our past, present, and future. The gospel is not something we move beyond but we come back to it again and again. Now, look with me at verses three to seven. This is the second point. The gospel is historical. So he wants them to know that if we're going to be talking about the resurrection, the resurrection is the very linchpin of the gospel, and the gospel is what saves us, then how do we know that this is all true? And so he says that it's historical. Verse three, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's saying this is the most important thing. First importance, top tier information. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So Paul says he did not make these ideas up. These ideas aren't his. He encountered Jesus on the Damascus road. If you'll all remember in Acts, he recounts it three different times. He saw Jesus. And he received this gospel in those early days afterwards from the Lord Jesus and from Ananias. And, and Paul was a devout student of the Old Testament. He was a trained Pharisee. And now he's come to understand all of it through the cross itself. And so he draws out three historical truths in this, these verses for us. The first is that Christ died. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And, and almost universally, no one disputes this one. That Christ indeed was a real person who came in the flesh, incarnation, God become man. There was a person named Jesus that walked, lived in perfect obedience to the very laws of God, and then he died. Back in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when he says in accordance with the scriptures, the question comes up, well, what scriptures does Paul have in mind there? Is it any specific kind of verse or text that he's thinking about? Or is it sort of the whole of the Old Testament? I think it's a little bit of both. 
I think he probably has in view certain specific verses, but then he also has sort of the whole message of the Old Testament. All of it was pointing to the necessity of Jesus dying for our sins as a sacrifice. Uh, Our women are studying Exodus right now, and many of us know the story of Exodus. The establishment of the sacrificial system with the tabernacle and the temple and the killing of the lamb and the sprinkling of the blood and even at Passover, the spreading of the blood on the doorpost. What was all of that pointing to? That we need a sacrifice. We need a blood sacrifice. In Hebrews, it says, we know that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. We needed a better sacrifice. It was all pointing to the person and work of Jesus. So the whole Old Testament tells us this very story that in the fall, sin entered into the world and it had devastating worldwide effects. Sin, death, and disease. And we're all experiencing those realities even today. And the sacrificial system was never satisfied, and sin required atonement. And it was all pointing to the necessity of the gospel, and in particular, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think Paul has in view specific verses as well, like Isaiah 53. So let me just read a portion of Isaiah 53. Many of you know it, but it's just good to rehearse these truths for our hearts. He says, Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely, speaking of this one that is coming, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was a propitiation. With his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus was crucified with two robbers on his side and was buried in a rich man's grave. And though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Christ died for our sins this morning, brothers and sisters. If there's anything that we should be getting excited about as we look towards Easter, it's not lunch. It's not the lamb or the pot roast or the ham that we're going to eat. It's not all the Easter egg hunts that we're going to have. But it's this reality that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
And let these truths wash over you once again with fresh power. Without it, we would be hopeless. The second historical truth that he draws out is in verse 4. He says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, again, what does Paul have in mind? Does he have in mind specific passages or the whole of the Old Testament? Again, I think it's probably both. Hosea 6.2 says this. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Or in Matthew 12.40, Jesus is citing what happened in the book of Jonah. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or Peter, he cites Psalm 16, 9 to 11, in Acts 2, when he speaks of Jesus' body not being abandoned or seeing any corruption. So again, we have in view that Christ not only died for our sins, was buried, but rose again on the third day. The third historical truth that we see is his post-resurrection appearances. Starts in verse 5. He says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, appeared to more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, the resurrection is the most important event in all of human history, and it's understood within the context of the gospel. And he's saying, the resurrection happened. Why? Because we know that Jesus died. We know that he rose again. People saw him. Roman soldiers were killed because the body wasn't there. No one has found his body to this day. And not only that, but all these people saw him. Even up to 500 brothers saw him. Now, we don't know exactly when those 500 saw Jesus, but anyone could have debunked what Paul had written here if they would say, well, just tell me a handful of them and I'll go to them and I'll ask. And all of those people would have said, in those days, yeah, we saw his resurrection body. Would you be willing to die for that? Yeah, we would. We, we really saw him. The vast majority of those 500, when Paul was writing this, still alive. It's a little bit like us saying, did 9-11 really happen? Did 9-11 happen? How, how do you know it just wasn't a figment of your imagination? How do you know it wasn't just a vast misinformation campaign? Well, you would say, well, I know people who were in the building, or some people. I know a person who knew someone who was in the building. I know people who died in the building or on the airplanes. I went and saw the rubble. I see that there's two towers that aren't there anymore. You would say, I've seen the list and the faces of all those who die. I remember in 2001, we all remember where we were, if you're old enough, of like, where were you on 9-11? And I remember watching on TV, because someone had called me in California, San Diego, and I'm, and I'm watching live TV because the first plane had just gone into the first building. And you're watching with horror on live television as you see the plane go into the second tower. It really happened. That's what Paul's saying about the resurrection. It really happened in the same way that we know without a shadow of doubt 
that 9-11 happened, he's saying all of us, everyone in our day and time, without a shadow of doubt, know that the resurrection happened. Jesus walked among us. I touched him. I ate fish with him. He grabbed my shoulder. I smelled what he smelled like. I put my fingers in his hands. I looked at his feet. I stuck my fist into his side. Without a doubt, it happened. All of this points to the historical reality that Jesus indeed indeed did live, die, and resurrect. It's the climax and culmination of the entire Old Testament. So if you think about why is there so much in the Bible devoted to things before Jesus, if Jesus is really the main point of the entire Bible, it's because everything is building up to make sense of when Jesus, in fact, does come. Even in the very incarnation itself. Why do angels show up and declare it to shepherds? didn't have to happen that way. He could have just been born into total, utter obscurity. But why do the angels show up? So that no one would miss it. Something big is happening here. Why does a dove, or the Holy Spirit actually, that looks like a dove, land on Jesus at his baptism? And why do we hear a voice that says, this is my beloved son, is so that we would know without a shadow of doubt, this is the Messiah and the Christ. Why does Peter get a vision of the transfiguration? Only three of them were given that vision. is so that they would know, they would write it down, and that we would know and have full and utter confidence. The gospel is a historical reality because the resurrection is a historical reality. That's why we can have confidence this morning. Next week on Easter, we'll look at All of Paul's arguments that he'll concede that if the resurrection didn't happen, we're the most pitied of people on the face of the earth. And we're going to look at that passage. But but this morning, let, let me just draw our attention to the reality that the gospel has indeed happened. The, the resurrection had ha- has happened. The gospel is a real reality. And so what should wash over our hearts and minds this morning? Joy, peace, and life. Let's look at the third point, verses 8 to 11. The gospel is personal. So not only is the gospel essential, not only is it historical, but now it's personal. Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, which could be translated as one who was stillborn. He he appeared to me. He also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So, Paul says, I I, I was a persecutor of the church. I, I... I stood by and watched the clothes of those who stoned Stephen. I'm unworthy. And yet he says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. He's pointing to the transformative power of the gospel to transform his very life from once being a persecutor of the church to now being an apostle, 
one who saw Jesus at the very end, a special vision of Jesus on the Damascus road, that he would say, I'm the least of the apostles. I didn't see all of his miracles and, and his life, his death, but I saw him. Now, some may wonder as they read this, why does Paul talk about how he worked harder than all the rest? And yet there's this mention of grace three different times. I think it's this. He's trying to highlight the relationship between grace and work. There's this tension that is at work, that obedience to God and walking in good deeds that God has prepared for us does indeed require work or labor or intentionality or diligence. And yet Paul is highlighting again and again, and he says it three different times so we wouldn't miss it, that it's all by grace. How we get saved is all by grace. How we walk in obedience is all by grace. How we even strive towards walking out our faith is all by grace. This is the very power of the gospel. It's not work this hard so that you get these things, but it's just come and receive what you do not deserve, what you cannot earn to receive the life and blessing that doesn't just stay there, but that actually transforms you so that we become more like Christ, so that fresh affections rise up in our hearts and say, oh, I love him. He's so precious to me. Philippians 2 talks about this very tension, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, strive to work it out. And then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Everything we have is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in us so that we would walk in good deeds and abound in the work of the Lord. And Paul is saying, these are not just good ideas, but the gospel is a transformational power at work in my very heart, in my life. God bore the full penalty of sin upon his flesh so that we can say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So the main point of our passage is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection is essential. It's historical and it's personally good news. It's essential for salvation, but it's not just for salvation. It's essential for everyday living. It's not something we move beyond, but it's also a historical reality. It really did happen. And it's personally good news because it transforms us to become more and more like Jesus. Paul wrote these things to be a reminder and exhortation for the Corinthians to hold fast to Jesus. So this morning, are we holding fast to this good news? Or have we somehow moved beyond this? You know, lots of liberal scholars will say, well, it doesn't really matter if the resurrection happened. You know, as long as it kind of gives us a coherent worldview, it's fine if the resurrection really didn't happen. And, and, you know, it, it, it still makes better people out of mankind. That's total garbage. 
I was going to use a different word, but then it would need to be beeped out. Uh, it, 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 it's just utter ridiculousness. The, the resurrection is key for how we understand the entire world. And Paul is saying in no uncertain terms, it really did happen. And this gospel is worth us banking our entire lives upon. That we would live for him and die for him. And Paul is saying, look how it's transformed me. I was as zealous as I could be in persecuting this church. And look how zealous I am now for Jesus because I believe these things without a shadow of doubt. And that's what we want this word to do in us this morning. Are you wavering? Are you doubting? Are you thinking, maybe I'm on the wrong side of history. Maybe we're just all deceived. Maybe these things didn't really happen. Maybe it's time to jump ship and find something else. Maybe there's a better solution for me. Maybe all roads just lead to heaven and it's just some kind of general, nondescript, you know, faith that we should follow. And all of it, I would say no. Bank your life upon the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. And so our sole application in this text is bask and delight yourself in these glorious realities this morning. Let your heart sing because Jesus is ours. He lived. He died, he rose again, he sits in the heavens, and he right now rules and reigns over all, and he's conforming us into his image. And he's given us his spirit at work in our hearts right now so that the spirit of God would stir in us fresh affection. When you've been a Christian for maybe 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or 60 years or 70 years, it it might be tempting to just be like, ah, I'm going to, Move on to bigger and better things. I I know that. And yet, that's a dangerous place to be, is it not? We want to continue, brothers and sisters, to come back to this central word. This same gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians is the same gospel that you heard preached at some point in your life in which you believed, which caused your salvation, in which you stand if you indeed hold fast to it to the very end. And so this morning, it's not about, did I check all the boxes? Did I cross all the T's and dot all my I's? Did did I do enough stuff this week where God would be pleased with me? Am I raising my kids the right way? Am I reading the right books? looking at things the right way, doing the right things. North American Christianity can very much so be about perfectionism. Let's try to put on a good face for one another that we're not broken people that are full of heartache. And yet the gospel reminds us that's precisely why this gospel is good news. The church is a hospital for sinners not a museum for dusty saints. And yes, we are saints, forgiven, washed, and cleansed, and yet we're all broken. And so as you invite people to join us on Easter, or if you're a visitor here this morning, don't be deceived by the tie. We're not all put together. We're all broken and weary, 
And yet we are beggars who have found bread. And we would say, it's Jesus. And he is so precious to us. And we hope, we pray that you would come and feast and find a relationship with Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we long for Christ to be greatly exalted in every heart and in every mind. And so do what we can't do. Do it in the power of your spirit. Let these truths awaken our hearts to new heights, that we would feel new affections for Jesus. And even as we sing this closing song, we pray that you would cause us to be satisfied with your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.